Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This past weekend should have been the start of my 2020 racing season with the 70.3 in Oceanside, California. I've done that race several times over the years, and it's always one that I've enjoyed. I was looking forward to it again this year as a real test of my early season fitness and as a launching pad towards the summer races that I had planned. Alas, it was not to be, as the pandemic has derailed this race along with all of the other early season triathlons around the world. And so, like so many others, I find myself continuing to train, but without an obvious start line in sight. I considered some alternative hobbies. Non-competitive eating has definitely been high on the list of things occupying my time, now that I find myself continuously living within walking distance of the larder. A brief foray into hand modeling was another option that I entertained, but let's face it, once you have sat next to the real stars in that field, why bother? But that's a story for another day. In the end, though, I realized that the reality is I don't just train in order to race. When I first got into triathlon many years ago, the things that motivated me were getting fit, losing weight, and becoming healthier in general. While racing and continually improving in the sport have obviously become more and more important over time, those original motivations have always remained important, and now, in the face of potentially no races for the rest of the year, they are even more so. I've heard from many people that they are struggling with their motivation now that their races have been cancelled, and I certainly understand that. Heck, it's what motivated me to begin the segment Motivation in Isolation that you're going to hear a little bit later on. But if you're one of those people, I would encourage you to think hard about why you got into endurance sport, and particularly triathlon in the first place. No doubt, the finish line is a huge deal, and I don't mean to diminish that in any way. But if that's your only reason for putting in all the hours, then maybe it's time to spend a little time thinking about the bigger picture. As a triathlete, you are so much more than the finisher medal. Through your hard work and dedication, you are an inspiration to many, your family, your friends, and many who you don't even know. And the fact is that by continuing to stay active in this time of uncertainty, you are remaining so. You're helping yourself not only physically, but psychologically as well. Absolutely, it sucks that we can't be out together training, and not having certainty around what races will still happen definitely doesn't make it easier. But keep moving. Stay the course, and remember that just like in long-distance tries, there are so many things out of your control, it is best to spend your time and energy focusing on those things that you can. At this moment, that means sticking with your training, because we will come out of this at some point, and how much better will you feel then if you maintained your fitness and form than if you had to start anew? There, maybe that can be your motivator. On the show today, Kevin Koskela operates the Try Swim Coach and records a popular podcast of the same name. Kevin was a competitive swimmer in college and has made a career out of helping triathletes become better at the discipline that is most frequently the one they disdain. Kevin joins me today to talk all about how triathletes can leverage swim training, not just to improve that segment of the race, but their whole triathlon. And he even weighs in on the long-standing debate about whether or not you need to do flip turns during your swim sessions. For the second episode of Motivation in Isolation, I'm joined by another woman who has achieved incredible success in triathlon, running, and open water swimming. Rebecca Adamson is another member of the Cupcake Cartel, who makes her home in the Seattle area. She has been a Boston Marathon qualifier and a multiple Ironman finisher, and is taking this whole season shutdown in stride as best that she can. She She speaks with me to give me and you her tips for how she is keeping her motivation up in this time of mandatory isolation. But before all of that, as always, I have a medical question to answer. You've probably heard some news reports recently about how blood banks are really hurting for donations during this time of social distancing. While the need for blood is lower because of decreases in trauma volumes, the need isn't altogether gone. A question that I have frequently been asked over the years is whether or not donating blood is a good idea for endurance athletes, and if so, how much of an impact one can expect to see on performance from doing so. I take a look at the science and give you some answers on this important and selfless way to help others, coming up right now.
If you've been paying attention, you have probably heard about an experimental therapy for the most seriously ill patients with COVID-19 that involves the transfusion of plasma from donors who have recovered from the illness. The theory is that patients who survive infection with the coronavirus form important antibodies that can be found in their plasma, and that an infusion of this fluid can confer these life-saving proteins to the sickest of patients who, to that point, have been unable to make the same immune complexes. Now, this isn't a new idea. Similar transfusions were initially suggested as therapy during the influenza epidemic in 1918, and did in fact show some success. Polio was also sometimes treated this way in the 1930s and 40s. But no matter which disease we're talking about, the common denominator in all of them is that someone who has recovered from the infection must give blood in order for the blood to be separated into its component parts and then be transfused into various donors. Blood donation remains an invaluable part of the healthcare system. For all the wondrous drugs that we've been able to manufacture to do all manner of miraculous things, we've never really been able to come anywhere close to doing the kinds of things that our blood can. This includes carrying oxygen, stopping bleeding, uh, the various components that uh, form the coagulation cascade, and fighting infection. And for this reason, millions of patients around the world every year depend on the generosity of those who choose to selflessly donate this life-giving substance. The components of blood, red blood cells, platelets, and plasma, which include a cornucopia of substances, including the antibodies I previously mentioned, as well as clotting factors and some other things, can be given to patients who are injured as a result of trauma, have bleeding from things like ulcers or ectopic pregnancies, have hemophilia or other clotting disorders, or autoimmune disease like Guillain-Barre syndrome or myasthenia gravis. In all of these cases, these different components extracted from pints of blood donated by different donors Owners around the world can have life-altering effects to the recipients. In high-income countries, 45 million blood donations are given a year, but from only 4% of the population, a very tiny proportion of people giving all of that blood. Now, there are various reasons why more people don't give blood. These include things like being afraid of needles, Frankly, laziness. There's People have a lot of things to do and don't want to actually spend the time going to blood drives. But also because there are a lot of misconceptions related to a lack of understanding, including questions related to how donating blood can adversely affect all manner of different activities, including, and most important to the listeners of this podcast, exercise performance. And that, then, is really the subject of today's question. Is donating blood compatible with training for and racing in triathlon? If I'm going to answer that question, we need to think about what we're really asking. And I think it can be succinctly distilled down to three basic things. First, how does blood donation affect our actual blood levels? We're all familiar with the idea of blood doping. When athletes take extra blood or take EPO as a manner of increasing their blood, what they're doing is really taking larger amounts of hemoglobin, the molecule that, or the molecule within our red blood cells that transports oxygen to our working muscles. Well, if you donate blood, how exactly, how much exactly are we losing hemoglobin and therefore potentially adversely affecting our ability to carry oxygen to working muscles and therefore decreasing exercise performance? And that's the second aspect of the question. How does the effect of blood levels, how does the effect on decreasing hemoglobin actually show itself as decreasing exercise performance? And finally, how long do these effects last, both on the levels within our blood and on the effects on exercise performance? Well, these things have been studied, and they've been studied quite a bit over the years. And I found a pretty good article that uh, put all of the data together and gave a pretty good look at what one can expect if they donate a pint of blood, which is about 500 cc's. After donation, hemoglobin, the actual molecule within the red blood cells, those levels can be seen to drop by about 7% at 24 to 48 hours. And this drop actually persists all the way through 14 days when it's recovered about half of much of that loss is recovered to a point where it's at 4% decrease from before when the blood was donated. Now, hematocrit is different from hemoglobin. Hematocrit is actually a measure of what proportion of the blood is equal to 
red cell mass. So you take the blood, you put it into a centrifuge and you spin it, and you actually look at how much of the uh, liquid blood is formed by volume of red blood cell mass. Now you can imagine that when you give up blood, you're going to be giving up hemoglobin and plasma and everything together. And over time, the blood volume is going to be reconstituted at first just by fluids and eventually by replaced red blood cells. So hematocrit is going to change over time with probably a bigger drop in hematocrit initially, and that's going to go away over time. And indeed, that's what researchers have found. Uh, 5% drop in hematocrit initially uh, in 24 to 48 hours after blood donation, but by 14 days, the hematocrit actually has normalized completely. Now, with these drops in hemoglobin and oxygen delivery to muscle cells, researchers have actually studied VO2 max, and they have seen that VO2 max, or the ability of cells to utilize oxygen, also decreases by 7% to 24 to 48 hours after donation. But interestingly, even though hemoglobin levels stay lower by about 4% at 14 days, VO2 max has recovered after 48 hours and doesn't show any difference to pre-donation levels at any other time point. So consider that. Hemoglobin, the molecule responsible for transporting oxygen, stays depressed by about 4% at 14 days. But the VO2 max can be seen to be decreased only for the first 48 hours. After that, VO2 max recovers perfectly. Why would that be so? Well, that's probably because we restore our blood volume with liquid and allow for effective circulating volume to be restored, and heart rate will probably increase to compensate for the decrease in hemoglobin. So oxygen-carrying capacity will be lower, but the actual oxygen delivery will likely be pretty similar because we increase our cardiac output, one of the main components of oxygen delivery. Now, exercise capacity has been looked at by researchers as well after blood donation. And exercise capacity has been seen to be decreased in the first 48 hours after donation, with both an earlier time to exhaustion and lower maximal possible exertion. And these levels have uh, paralleled about 7 to 10%. But again, interestingly, after that initial 48 hours, similar to what we saw with VO2 max, Exercise capacity and maximal exercise exertion have recovered pretty much to pre-donation levels. Now, submaximal efforts haven't really been shown to be affected by blood donation, but the studies that looked at this were pretty small, and so these results have to be interpreted with a certain degree of caution. Still, it appears that most of what you can expect to be affected by blood donation are going to be those kinds of efforts that are done at threshold capacity and initially in the first couple of days after the blood donation has been done. So taken in sum, the findings that have been seen by researchers indicate that blood donation does, in fact, decrease hemoglobin levels, as one would expect. Fluid losses that are associated with blood donation are compensated for quite quickly, but the hemoglobin isn't repleted even after 14 days, although about half of the hemoglobin repletion has been done. The drop in hemoglobin results in a decreased oxygen carrying capacity that impacts VO2 max and the ability to tolerate exercise at maximum intensities at least for the first 48 hours. But afterwards, increased cardiac output, which is another important determinant in oxygen delivery to the tissues, has increased to the point that VO2 max as well as uh, maximum exercise uh, intensity have both recovered to pre-donation levels. All of the effects that one can expect to see with blood donation tend to last for about two weeks, at which point hemoglobin levels have pretty much recovered. Again, you have about a 50% recovery rate at two weeks, and at that point, you're not seeing any real differences at any uh, level of any kind of exercise. And as I said, most of the research says that, in fact, most of the exercise uh, effects actually recover after only two days. Now, it's unclear if the effects that have been seen especially those on VO2 max and threshold, are really limited to the highest performing athletes or if they apply to everyone. And this is important. We know that VO2 max changes of about 7 to 10% are critical to professional and very high level functioning athletes. But for the average age grouper, it's not clear that that level of change in VO2 max is going to have that much of an important uh, effect because most average age groupers aren't training at that high of a level all the time. 
So it's not clear if a blood donation is really going to be that important on having a negative effect on training on the average age grouper. Still, you definitely can expect to see some kind of adverse effect, at least for two days after giving blood. So now the question becomes whether or not an athlete wants to give blood. Is the altruistic motivation to give blood and help others enough to offset the fact that for a couple of days at least, one can expect to see a modest decrease in their ability to perform exercise at threshold? That's not something I can tell you, uh, you know, uh, answer for the individual athlete. That's going to have to be something that each person is going to have to make up their minds. I can tell you that giving blood goes a long way to helping all manner of different individuals, not just those who are injured in trauma, but cancer patients who have uh, decreases in their ability to make their own blood, uh, patients who have autoimmune diseases who need to have immunoglobulins given to them that are extracted from people's plasma, and as I mentioned earlier, patients who are born with genetic issues uh, related to their clotting cascade who need to get clotting factors that are taken from patients' uh, plasma as well. So there are a lot of uh, good things that you can do by giving blood, But again, you have to make that calculus in your mind about whether or not you want to have that potential slight negative decrease in your ability to do maximal efforts for a couple of days after the donation. This is a question for each individual to consider, and I think it probably makes sense that there are going to be certain times during training that blood donation is going to make sense and others where it might not, related to where in the calendar you are, close or far from a race, for example. But right now, with races not happening and the need for blood actually being quite acute, this is probably not a bad time. If it's something that you have done in the past or something that you're considering or have considered as something that you'd like to do to help, this would probably be a decent time to consider doing it. Do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me by email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. While most of us are restricted from getting to the pool, that doesn't mean we can't talk about swimming. The swim is almost always the barrier to entry for many who consider triathlon. Potential triathletes without much of a swimming background are intimidated by the idea of an open water swim and feel as though they will not be able to get themselves to a point where they can swim well enough to cover the distance in the required time. If you are someone who thinks like this, well, I am joined today by a man who would like to speak with you. Kevin Koskella is the head coach of Tri Swim Coach and has a podcast of the same name and has made a career out of helping triathletes and wannabe triathletes get over their insecurities and master the swim. Kevin was an All-American swimmer in college and coached master swimmers and triathletes on and off for years in California. At first, he was baffled as to why these athletes were not able to swim properly. He then became angry with the status quo and went on a mission to save swimmers and triathletes from all the misinformation and techniques that, well, basically just don't work, but are still commonly taught out there. I'm thrilled to have Kevin join me to talk about his approach to helping triathletes swim better and faster. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Kevin. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. I'd like to start first with just that question that I alluded to in the intro, which is uh, how is it that the adult learner uh, can become proficient at swimming in triathlon? Yeah, there's a there's a lot to say there. So it really depends on what your background is. Um, so most people, especially in the U.S. here, learn to swim from like the Red Cross swim lessons and uh, they teach you how to use your arms and how to use your legs and uh, it's all wrong. <laughs> it's, it's just the wrong me- methodology of teaching. And so most people that I, they come across, that I come across with lessons, um, the beginners are coming from that background. Like they're uh, using their arms and they're using their legs and they're not being efficient whatsoever. So that's where it, we usually start with uh, just kind of like forget about what you know now and just go back to basics. And so I start teaching those beginners um, just the basics with kicking. I mean, kicking is like something that, you know, a lot of triathletes kind of shy away from. But when you're when you're overhauling your stroke like we like to do, um, the kicking the kick is going to be the first thing that, to start with, because if you're used to that kind of using arms and legs, you're probably using a lot of uh, bending your knees, you're using a lot of energy and you're just not efficient in the water. And that's the really the number one goal when the, the beginner triathletes come to me is to get them to be efficient, not necessarily fast right away. 
Well, what then should the adult learner focus on when they're swimming? Because you mentioned efficiency. Uh, yeah. Should they really be working on their form, their technique, or is it more a matter of strength or fitness that is going to get them to be where they need to be? Yeah, well, a lot of the people that I've worked with, they come in, they come to me and they're very fit, um, but their swimming has a long way to go. So they're, they're, uh, they could even be sinking in the water or even like I've seen people that kick and they go backwards when they're kicking. So, so there's a lot of technique that needs to happen. And, and so I like to, you know, like I said, start with the basics, start with, you know, how do you kick? And we start with a drill called vertical kicking. And that's, uh, that's something where you kick in an upright position in the water and you'll see right away. Most people are just will sink right away. So there's a lot of things that you can do there with stretching your ankles, using the zoomers fins when you swim and, and then just doing that vertical kick drill that will help with, you know, just that basic foundational kick. And so, yeah. And then from there, it's a series of drills that I have people go through and everybody's different. So one person, they might get everything in like three lessons, but another person, it might take six, seven, eight, nine lessons before they're actually able to transform their stroke into something that's, that's more efficient. And that's going to be way more important than, than focusing on condition or, or doing, um, you know, interval training or anything like that. And when you think of the common things that swimmers and, you know, beginner swimmers that come to you do wrong, could you sort of classify them into, to, I don't know, three or four different things that you commonly see? Yeah, I could definitely do that. It's, um, the first one is kicking. Like I mentioned, uh, a lot of triathletes, you know, they come from a running background. They're good runners and they jump in the pool and they have no idea why they can't seem to go forward fast enough. And they're out of breath when they touch the wall. And so that's, that's the, probably the number one, they, they're, they're sinking. So the sinking is the, probably the number one or two, um, common issue that we get. And so there's a lot that we can do there in order to help them to swim on the surface of the water, as opposed to dragging their feet or drag or having their legs dragged behind them. Uh, so that's a big issue. And then breathing is, is another one. A lot of times people can, they start to get the stroke, like we can put them through drills and they start to get the you know basics of swimming on your side and getting more efficient, but the breathing just completely will throw them off. So that's one that that takes some practice, and there's a lot of things that we can do there with breathing. Um, and then there's the arm motion. So the other common issue that I see is that when you go to take a breath, this is part of breathing, but when you go to take a breath, a lot of people will their arm will drop, the, the arm will sink. And then what that does is it just throws your entire stroke off and then you're using way more energy than you need to and you're not efficient at all. So we teach sort of more of that high elbow catch. So, you know, getting that arm extended and then having that high elbow. So you have like a paddle there right at the beginning of the stroke. Now, as a coach myself, uh, I don't get to spend a lot of time with my athletes at the pool. And I know that, you know, I see... When they send me video, I see a lot of these technique things like that you're mentioning, but I've kind of gotten into this sort of idea or not maybe this idea, but this notion that fixing technique is really difficult and I will focus instead on helping my athletes become better swimmers with the technique that they have and over time just try to fix technique very incrementally. Is that a strategy that you uh, adhere to or do you really go for like a real overhaul of stroke and then work, you know, sort of reshape it from the bottom up. Yeah, I, I think it's somewhere in between what you're saying. I, I like what you're doing and I, I get it. And I think that that can totally work depending on who you're working with, what their goals are and what distance race they're doing. Um, I, I like to see them get to a certain point, but I never go for perfection. Like there are things that, you know, you could, I could do five or six lessons with someone and a lot of times I get them to a certain point and then they can, we can start working on endurance and speed and everything else when their technique is not perfect, but they've got some of the foundations there. Like, you know, some people just don't rotate their hips. And if you're starting, if you start working on the conditioning when they're swimming flat in the water, then it's, it's only going to go so far. So I think there's certain things that, that have to be kind of figured out. Uh, that they have to kind of figure out, I mean, and, and then, then we can start, you know, going into conditioning, but 
Yeah, I mean, most of us, most people didn't grow up swimming and it's really hard and it takes years to get that really fluid stroke that you see with some of the, you know, some of the distance swimmers, like the Olympic swimmers and stuff like that. You're just not going to, it's not going to happen in a few weeks. Can sort of adult learner swimmers, I mean, can they become really, really sort of strong swimmers as, you know, as good as some of these people who've been swimming since they were kids? Or is it really just a matter of, you know what, they're going to get to a ceiling that's not going to ever be as high? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it really depends. Again, it depends on the person. Uh, I think it's possible to get there, to get there uh, with a lot of work and a lot of effort um, and a lot of just getting in, in the water, like putting in that time in the water is going to get you there faster. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that people that have been swimming their whole lives and got in when they were six years old, started competing at six years old, six years old or something, they're going to have an advantage in, in swimming. And it's, it's probably not a great goal to try to catch up to them, but to just do what you can with what you have. Right. You know, I hear from a lot of people who are adult onset swimmers, <laughs> adult onset, uh, adult <laughs> onset swimmers who, uh, you know, they, they just sort of are like, you know, this is as good as I'm going to get. And I have to admit, I mean, I felt this way for a while. Uh, you sort of reach this plateau. You just you put in all the work. It doesn't seem to be getting any better. And then they kind of come to this conclusion that I'm wasting my time in the water. I'm going to spend more time on the bike and the run and get, you know, more bang for the buck there. What's your argument to those athletes? Yeah, that's a, I understand that. And, uh, and that comes up quite a bit. And uh, I think that there's, it, you know, if you're not coming from a swimming background, I think it is really important to put in the time in the water and not just throw it all away and say, well, I'm not that good at swimming. So I'll just focus on the things that I'm good at. I think you need to focus a little bit more on your weakness, especially at first, if, if swimming is your weakness. And I think that's going to that's going to make it you, you can do it. And I think a lot of people come in with the idea that, like you said, like, well, I'm never going to get there. And it's kind of that attitude that sort of, yeah, if you keep saying that, uh, you're not going to get there. But there's, you know, there's, there's one thing that I talk about a lot with TriSwim Coach and, and my athletes, and that's that you, you have to, you really have to have the attitude that you, you can't have the attitude that, you, that, oh, I'm the worst one. I'm, I'm a terrible swimmer. If you keep saying I'm a terrible swimmer and I'm, I'm the worst, I'm going to finish last and all that then it's going to put a limit on how far, how much improvement you can Because I've seen plenty of people start out at that beginner level and go really far and have an efficient stroke where they're not coming in to the end of the swim completely tanked and not able to perform on the bike and run as much as they could. So, you know, and I think it's important also to, to keep in mind, like, what are your goals? Are your goals to get, to have a better overall race or do you want to, just try to improve your swim. I mean, most people want to have the better overall race. And and that was a huge insight for me as an athlete. And now I try to impart that to my athletes as a coach is that, you know, working on the swim doesn't necessarily make you that much of a stronger swimmer incrementally, but it really helps you become a better biker and runner because when you get out of the water, not feeling as fatigued, not feeling as out of breath, your heart rate's lower because you've put in that time in the pool uh, suddenly you can bike a lot stronger right from the get-go. And like you're saying, I think there are other benefits to putting in the time in the pool besides just becoming a faster swimmer. So a uh, really yeah. important point. Okay, uh, a, a very controversial question here. This is one that uh, is frequently debated amongst triathletes. Uh, how important are flip turns when training in the pool? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. that it's People ask me that all the time. And um, I, I'm a stickler. I'm like a... I'm like a dictator when it comes to flip turns. I love flip turns. I think they're awesome. And I think it is really important. So I'm going to come down hard on this one <laughs> and, uh, because I know triathletes just, they, they want to do the open turn. And it, the, the problem with open turns is like, if you're training for a race that's open water and you're in the pool and you're constantly taking those little breaks at every turn, getting that big breath, it's not training you for open water because so, you know, you, ideally you want to train in a 50 meter pool I mean, because we do need pool training. We don't, you know, I don't want to just train the open water, but ideally you want to train in a 50 meter pool and do flip turns because it does, it is harder. And that's the thing is a challenge. It's harder. You have to hold your breath and, and let go of air from your nose when you're, when you're flipping, but it, it's really a learnable thing. I mean, this is not something that's as difficult as what people might think. 
So, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> my friend's going to be listening to this, uh, and she's going to she's going to side with you a hundred percent. As somebody who just I just vertigo issues. So like that's yeah. been a big issue for me trying to make flip turns. And so I've just abandoned them. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so, so I try, you know, I, I, I agree. I think like if I could do them, I totally would. I just uh, vertigo keeps me from being able to do them. But, uh, yeah. uh you know, it, it, I always love hearing the debate and, uh, seeing how people can get so animated about something as, uh, <laughs> seemingly inconsequential as flip turns. Uh, yeah. how about, uh, the idea of incorporating open water swimming into training how 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 do you see that as in terms of being you know very important or something that if it's great if you like if you have access to open water great you should do it but if you don't have access to open water it's not the end of the world Uh, where do you come down on the spectrum of how important is it to get open water swimming into your training yeah i mean if you're doing an open water race i think it's extremely important um there's kind of a balance that that I think triathletes need to find with, if they're training for a race that's that's it's gonna be in the open water, they need to get out there and experience it because it's quite different from the pool, obviously. There's so many elements that you're gonna be dealing with that you have to start getting used to that. And then wearing your wetsuit out there and all these things that you, you don't wanna be just brand new to when you jump into a race. And uh, it just reminds me when you're asking me that is, like my, I was a competitive swimmer in college and you know, I, I was doing really well. And then we decided as a group to go enter an open water race. And, uh, it was just a shock to me, like the difference. Like I felt like I was, I'm like, I'm a good swimmer. I'm, you know, I trained twice a day and, and I got in there in the open water and I was just like, I mean, the first thing was the cold, like I was shocked and my breathing was really fast and I went out way too fast. And I was, I mean, it was, it was a completely different, completely different thing. So yeah, I think, you know, the way I, I designed the plans, I have these plans that I, that I give for like Olympic distance, half Ironman, Ironman. And, um, I, the, at the beginning, you're not getting in the open water because we're doing a lot of drills. And then, um, and then when we start, you know, over 12 weeks, we start getting in the, into the, the ocean or the lakes or whatever, um, right around week four, and then just do it all the way up until the 12th week and, and your race. So about once a week, I think is ideal. Um, if you can do more, that's great. But I, I used to, when I used to train in uh, La Jolla there in San Diego, there was a lot of triathletes that that's all they did. They just, they just get in the ocean and that was their entire training. And I mean, that's fine. You know, if you just want to have fun, but if you're taking it real seriously, then I would say the pool is, is also, you need to balance that out a little bit. So talk a little bit more about that. Uh, what what are the benefits you get from pool training that you don't get from open water? I mean, clearly the yeah. the things that you get from open water are very obvious to me. I mean, sighting practice, like you said, the wetsuit, right. dealing with surf, things like that. But what what are the things you get in pool training that you can't get in open water? Yeah, it's it's a lot of it. It's at the beginning the drills. I mentioned the drills. Um, it's it's very difficult to do drills when you're out in the open water, whereas in the pool you can. Uh, there's so many things that you can do to improve your stroke. And, and then you have, so there's the, the stroke technique with drills, and then you have uh, interval training, which is really great to do when you're training for a distance race. And uh, so you can do that, you know, with a clock, you've got, you know, access to that. And uh, yeah, I think that, you know, that's, and, and then it's just easier to access for most people. Like even when I was living in San Diego and I mean, even driving to La Jolla, it takes a while because there's a lot of traffic there and then parking and getting to the ocean and then putting on your wetsuit. And I mean, all that is, a, it's a big ordeal. Whereas if you have access to a pool, it's just, you don't have as many um, barriers to entry. So right. yeah, I think. I, I think also I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, the absence of sharks in most pools, <laughs> uh, you know, except on, you know, maybe certain people have sharks, but, uh, most of the time you're not going to see sharks when you're swimming in a pool. So that to me is a bonus. Um, sure. I'll give you that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, swimming is uh, sort of the last of the three sports, uh, in which there's been any kind of dedication of, uh, you know, a lot of these companies to make 
kind of high tech goodies for triathletes to play with. Uh, but in the last couple of years, there's now been a couple of uh, toys that have come out. We've seen goggles with heads up displays. We've seen uh, some dedicated swim watches and uh, various other tech. Uh, I'm curious if there's anything that's kind of uh, piqued your curiosity or interest and that you've seen uh, that actually seems like it might be reasonable to consider for the average triathlete as uh, being able to enhance their swim training. I mean, I would say it's not exactly high tech, high tech or anything, but you know, the one thing that I do with all of my swimmers is uh, advise them to get fins and, uh, the zoomers are, are the best and they, they really do help you to get to a ne- another level with swimming because of, there's so many different things that they do. Um, if you're using them in the right way, so zoomers can help you kind of, uh, uh give you that ankle, ankle flexibility. And that's something that everybody needs with, with swimming. You need ankle flexibility. So zoomers kind of force you into that, um, the, the proper kick position. They also allow you to do these drills that we give without as much of a problem as without them. Because with the fins, you can kind of stay at the surface of the water and execute the proper drills, uh, whereas you might be sinking more without them. So I, I really like those. And then the, the lava shorts that, that Xterra makes, um, those can be really helpful as well. And the same kind of thing, they keep you buoyant. So you're not worried about sinking while you're improving your stroke. So those are the things that I like. Um, I, I, you know, uh, promote those as much as I can. And I also warn people to not get addicted to these things because some people, they wear the fins and then they just wear them all the time. And that's not the idea. Like it's for for specific purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So now that uh, people uh, don't have access to pools uh, during this time, uh, how, uh, how can they adapt? How can they maintain their training uh, without being able to swim and uh, you know, or is there really any point? Because without the feel of being in the water, you know, it doesn't really matter. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think you, you nailed it. The feel of the water is so important. And so anyone that thinks that they can make any kind of like significant progress in, in this time when they can't access water, uh, they're not, it's just not going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean you need to let everything slide and slip away because there are ways to keep things up and keep in shape swimming and keep in swimming shape. And that's what I've been kind of doing with the tri-swim coach people is uh, sort of advising them on what kinds of things that we can do to not let things slip too much in this time period. And um, so there's a couple things. Um, you know, I've seen there's some swim coaches online that are doing a lot of like the bands and tubing. And, and I, I've done some of that too. I've kind of done some videos with that. And that's great. I think that there's a place for, for doing the tubing workouts and bands and, and that the motion, the swimming motion you know, that's, that's all good. But I think there's a little more to it because I think people start to think like, I need to do strength training. I need to strengthen my muscles for swimming. It's not necessarily that you need, like, you know, if you got really strong and big triceps, that's not really going to help your swim. So, cause you can do that. I mean, you can work on your triceps and things, but, uh, that isn't really what we need. Now I, I trained, um, last year myself for an open water swim, and, um, I had, there were periods I was traveling, I'm nomadic and I was traveling and I was going to different cities and sometimes I didn't have access to open water or even a pool. And so what I was doing was a lot of yoga and there's a lot of things in yoga that can help with swim training. There's a, there's a great crossover and I, I already was big on yoga with swimming, especially distance swimming. And so I tell people like you, what you really need is to work your core. You need to keep that core in shape. And there's a lot of moves in yoga that, that really do that. And you're also um, strengthening your shoulders. So if you have any sort of shoulder issues, yoga is great for that. Um, and then you're strengthening your legs. So it's, it's kind of the ideal exercise. And so I'd say doing a combination right now, and this is what I'm doing, is do a, one day do a set with bands and tubing. And then the next day do like a 30-minute yoga session. And there's a bunch of great yoga uh, videos on YouTube. There's one that the race club, it's called the race club. They put out a couple of great sessions for swimmers at yoga for swimmers. And so I've been doing some of those and, and that, I think that's the way to, to kind of keep things from, um, you know, kind of slipping. Now, if you really want to try to make gains during this time, I don't think, you know, not a lot of people do, but the people that want to make gains, you're going to have to get like a Vasa org 
you know, it's like a swim bench. That was going to be my um, next gonna, question. That was going to be my next question yeah. so is your thoughts about incorporating that. So how do you, how do you incorporate the VASA for people who have one? Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, the VASA is great and, um, you know, they give out uh, training plans even with, if you get, a, if you buy a VASA, you get like training plans with it. So, uh, and that's something that will actually keep you from losing a lot and, and you can make gains with it. Um, it still doesn't, it doesn't replace the need to get in the water, but I've heard of people that take, that do most of their training on the VASA and then they're just getting in the water, uh, once in a while and they're actually swimming pretty well and they're swimming fast. So, so I, yeah. I have a VASA and I use it oh, yeah. now. Now I'm using it exclusively, obviously. Uh, and the things that I have found with it is it's great for simulating the pull, the catch and the pull, right. but it, you know, you still, that water feel isn't there. And the other thing is, you know, you don't rotate your body, you're not kicking, right. uh, and the body position piece is just not there at all. Cause you're just lying flat. Um, and I'm just curious and you're not breathing, so you're not working with breathing at all. So I'm just yeah. curious, you know, you know, I've heard this before where other people say, oh yeah, the Vasa really makes great gains without actually being in the water. And I'm trying to imagine it myself, uh, I'm using it now exclusively. Uh, what, you know, what gives you confidence to say that? Because it really is very different from swimming. It's the closest to swimming. I, I agree. Like it's a lot closer than using bands, yeah. but uh, it's still pretty far from swimming. Yeah, you know, you're right. I, I don't believe that staying out of the water is a good idea for a long time if you want to, you know, actually make some gains. But the high elbow pull is something that you can really work with the with the bossa or like that. Keeping the, your elbows up. I mean, that is something that I. Still, I mean, when I was training last year for my race, I still, I see my elbows slipping down and I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself, but the more I could do that, the, you know, every single time reminding myself those elbows up, the better off I, I was. And that's what you can work on. I mean, that's one of the main things I think you can do with, with the erg. I mean, I think that really does help a lot. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, uh, that's definitely true. And that's, that's, like I said, the catch and the pull are the two things that really the VASA uh, accentuates. Uh, well, Kevin yeah. uh, Koskela is the head coach of Tri Swim Coach. He also has a podcast of the same name. Uh, he has a long career uh, helping triathletes become better swimmers. And once this pandemic is over, I'm sure he will have a uh, long career ahead of him doing the same. <laughs> Kevin, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. I'll have links uh, to both both his uh, Tri Swim Coach website and as well as the podcast in the show notes. Thanks again, Kevin. I really appreciated the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It was great, great being on. I'm joined today by Rebecca Adamson. Uh, Rebecca came to the sport after having really very little uh, background in sports, aside from being the captain of her high school badminton team. She started off as a runner and undertook her first half marathon in 2005, and then her first full marathon in 2007. She actually qualified for the Boston Marathon and only her second go at a marathon in 2009 at the Seattle Rock and Roll Marathon, and her PR at the Portland Marathon in 2011 is 326. She's a Boston finisher in all of 2010, 11, and 2012, and she got interested in triathlon when she discovered she liked to swim, and the stress of shaving minutes off of her marathon PRs got to become a little bit less fun. She undertook her first Olympic distance triathlon in 2011 and finished third, not just third in her age group, but third as the overall female. She then went on to the 70.3 distance at Lake Stevens in 2012. And after a bout of plantar fasciitis after Lake Stevens that required 10 minutes off, uh, sorry, 10 months off running, uh, she was still able to swim and bike and during that time discovered she really enjoyed long distance swimming. She uh, began doing a 3.2 mile open water swim that they have locally where she lives and she's been doing that every year since 2012 and has also finished the Seattle 10K open water invitational three times. Her first Ironman was Lake Tahoe in 2013 and remains her favorite to this day. She's also finished Ironman Kirtland in 2014 and Ironman Canada on three different occasions. She, like I, is a member of the Cupcake Cartel and this is her third year as a member of that team. This year in 2020, she's had several races postponed, like many of us, uh, a local half marathon, the Boston Marathon uh, in April, now postponed until September, 
upcoming and hopefully not postponed races include the uh, 70.3 race in Coeur Idaho in late June, the Fat Salmon 3.2 open water swim in mid-July, Ironman Canada in Penticton in late August. She's not planning on running the new Boston date because it's too close to Ironman Canada, but she has a BQ already for, tw- uh, for 2021, so she is planning on that. But for now, I've got her to settle down just long enough to join us and talk <laughs> about how she's staying motivated and how she's modified her training during the current COVID-19 crisis. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Rebecca, I guess the big question uh, for someone like you, who obviously is very active and very successful in the sport, is how are you maintaining your motivation during this time when races are canceled and you really don't know what the future holds? Well, I'm maintaining it the best I can. And I've always liked to say, and and this has definitely evolved over time, that it's discipline over motivation. And when I have one of those days where I just am not all that excited about getting out the door, it's like, okay, just be disciplined and just do it. So for me, I'm, I'm just trying to stay disciplined Um, it's very, it's, I feel like it's been very difficult to go from this massive amount of volume and speed during the marathon training and then just back it all the way back to a base training, which is pretty much what I've been doing. But I, you know, there's really no choice. There's no big races coming up. Um, Ironman isn't, unless it gets canceled, isn't until the end of August. So there's, there's a certain amount of just like, I just got to suck it up and take a step back and realize that in the bigger picture, this is going to keep me healthy for the rest of the year. Um, but it is, I mean, it's, it's been hard. It doesn't feel good to, to back down so drastically, you know, from what I was doing. And then of course the pool is closed and I love to swim. So all of a sudden taking the swim out of it is, um, it's been rough mentally. I think for a lot of triathletes, like, you know, most people really worry about the swim and if you can't do it, it just, it, it goes away so fast. So yeah. Uh, we're all kind of worried about the lake temperature and hoping that it <laughs> warms up pretty soon. Um, yeah. But I'm in the Seattle area, so it's going to be at least a month. Yeah. Living in sort of the heart of the pandemic, at least in one of the first places where it really struck very severely in the United States. Uh, wh- what do you do uh, when you're not training? What's your, do you work? Um, I... I was working. I haven't been for a couple of years. And that's just basically because I was way too overwhelmed with kids and family and, and not really making enough money at what I was doing to make it worth it, even though I loved what I was doing. Um, so I mean, right now, it I'm cleaning the house, the house is very clean. <laughs> the, do- <laughs> the dogs are getting a lot of walks. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, I have a, a lab who um, runs with me and she's in kind of endless energy. So we walk a lot. Um, the kids are home trying to keep everybody sane. Um, but it's it's hard. My oldest is home from college. She's very sad. This was her freshman year. You know, she's missing her friends and her roommate. And my other um, daughter is a junior in high school there. So we're off for six weeks minimum. And that was a real blow. It's been a real blow to everybody. These kids who are, you know, go, 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 very active. She's very active in class council and ASB. And they have a very good dance team. And this is like right at the height of their competition season. So we're all kind of having been used to this huge amount of volume and things that we're doing in our life. And then it's just sort of all backed off. So, yeah, the house is clean. <laughs> the dogs are yeah. locked. I think, um, you know, what you mentioned, what, yeah. you, what you mentioned is really important. I mean, I think we can, as triathletes, often become very kind of absorbed in what we're doing and forget about the others around us who are also just equally invested in whatever it is that they're doing. And they've lost out as well. And so keeping their motivation is equally important. Yeah. And allowing everybody to grieve just a little bit. I mean, we're, you know, we're still healthy. You know, we still have a pretty, I mean, our lives are are great, but I I want to let everyone grieve a little bit. And I think that if you've lost a race too, you know, that you should, it's okay to be sad about it. Um, it, Because we're not machines. So taking that time to just be like, okay, I'm bummed out. We're going to get through it. But acknowledging your feelings about it and, and thinking, okay, I don't feel great right now. And that's all right. Yeah. Um, 
what modifications have you made to your training? How have you uh, adapted now that you can't be, I mean, obviously at the pool, but also that you can't be outside quite as much? Yeah, well, um, definitely, I mean, taking the volume down quite a bit, um, doing a lot more strength work indoors. You know, I think a lot of us triathletes, as we've been doing this for a long time, most people have a extensive, you know, kettlebells and bands and <laughs> stretch cords and all that stuff. So definitely been, um, working on my strength a little bit more, um, spending more time in the trainer than I would like. Uh, I'm not usually a big fan of the trainer, um, especially when the weather's nice, but I, I, I think that there's something to be said about, um, you know, there's a certain amount of risk in cycling and I don't want to get hurt and have to go to the hospital when those resources are, um, meant for something else right now. So there's a little bit of feeling like maybe I should just stay on the trainer where I would have been outside normally. And maybe that's, maybe that's thinking a little bit too negatively about it. But, um, especially here where there's in, you know, in the Seattle area, there's really a lot, there's a general feeling in our community. Like we really got to keep everybody safe and healthy and, and not try to take up too many, you know, resources if possible. Um, I, I haven't been going on the treadmill though. And I think until, um, until they say you can't go outside at all, which hopefully won't happen. Um, you know, you can still stay way far apart from people in suburbia. So running is just pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. Uh, I think the cycling part is really difficult because, yeah, I, group rides, I think, are absolutely unacceptable. People should not be riding in groups. I, I certainly don't have a problem with people riding, say, two together, because just for safety reasons I mean, and for helping each other out if something goes wrong, like a flat or something. But mm -hmm. group rides just cannot be condoned in this environment. Um, but like you said, uh, cycling remains, there is a risk. And gosh, if you get hurt, never mind overwhelming the resources, but putting yourself into the situation where you're risking, I mean, almost 100% opportunity to put yourself exposed to other people who are infected. And, oh, totally. Uh, yeah. And, you know, this this isn't the zombie apocalypse, but I think the, the way that I like to tell people is, like, pretend that it is and just think yeah. what you would do if this was the zombie apocalypse. Maybe people would behave differently if they actually considered this the zombie apocalypse. Maybe they would take social distancing just a little bit more seriously. Yeah, it's it's disheartening to see pictures of, you know, all these people on spring break at the beach. And, you know, there's a couple of, you know, people are still getting together and doing like group training sessions at the park. And, you know, whether or not those are 10 people or more than 10 people. Um, if one is like, infected, it doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And and I think that people just either don't know somebody or they we haven't gotten to that point yet where there's just been this explosion of cases where every the system is really, really overwhelmed. I think we're close to that, um, but not so maybe people just don't see it enough and aren't taking it or, or they think because the media is always skies falling, skies falling. Do we know if it is or not now? Because the media is always pushing that. Um, well, I could us. tell you, I could tell you working in healthcare, the sky is falling and people yeah. are uh, oblivious and um, it's not going to end well. So, uh, but let's get back to uh, really the, the, the thing at hand here and, and oh, how, sure. how are you managing without, without the swimming? How are, how are you, uh, are you doing anything to try and keep your swim uh, strength up or you, have you added any kind of activities or are you just taking this time to focus more on your bike and run? So I haven't added in um, any dry land work yet, but I plan to just because the, I, I mean, the little swimming's only been out. The pool has only been closed for a week and I was swimming quite a bit. So I'm not, I'm not totally worried about it just yet, but I am going to add in some dry land work, um, with stretch cords and whatever my coach gives me, I'll just, I'll just do that. And then, you know, try to just get through until the lakes are warm enough, um, in about a month. So you'll actually incorporate open water swimming. You have that option. Oh yeah, there's so many lakes locally. Right now, the temperature is only about 46, um, which is like too too low. <laughs> yeah. But we, the area that I live in has has plenty of of freshwater lakes that are just wonderful, and we're really lucky. We're really fortunate about yeah. that. Yeah, that's definitely lucky. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've mentioned swimming, of course, as being one of the main things you miss. Is there anything else you really miss since all of this started? 
Um, I, I, I miss training for a marathon and, and I miss, you know, doing, doing the, the heavy volume and getting ready. And, and I miss the thought of being at the start line with thousands and thousands of other people, um, just the camaraderie and talking to people and meeting new people. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about the race is that you meet all these wonderful people and it's like, it's your tribe. And, and all of a sudden, you know, that's just taken away. And, you know, we're not even going on, on group runs or like you said, group cycling. So all the camaraderie is kind of, kind of gone, which I, I think that's, that's the saddest thing. And, and at the pool, I mean, we have our little friend group at the pool and I, I miss seeing those people, um, for sure. That's, it, you know, and it's something that you just don't get in the virtual world that, one-on-one contact with people and, and the opportunity to meet new people. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. I hear you. Uh, okay. What suggestions do you have for others, uh, who are going through this right now to try and keep their motivation up and to try and stay the course? So I think, um, when I, when I first, uh, chatted with you online a little bit about this, I, you had asked, you know, how people are doing it. And I, I said, well, I'm treating it like it's an injury. And, and what I have learned from being injured is focus on what you can do. Don't think about all the things that you can't do and how much of a bummer it is. Just focus on every little thing that you can do and make that like just your focus. I can do more strength. Okay. This is a good opportunity to, you know, work on that. This is a good opportunity to, to work on aerobic training. Maybe I'm not doing, you know, super speed work right now, but I can, I can work on my aerobic base. Um, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the trainer, but now's the time to learn to embrace it, <laughs> you know, learn to learn to kind of stare at the, at the walk. I don't, cause I don't do Zwift or anything and, and maybe do some visualization like of the courses that I might be doing later. So just really focus on, cause that's what I did when I was injured. You know, if I couldn't run while well, I focused on swimming and even if I had to swim with a pull buoy, then okay, I was doing that. <laughs> So, yeah, that's what I would say. Those are great suggestions. Uh, what are uh, your fears going forward, both personally and also for the sport? Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that this is, and I think a lot of us are worried that this is going to go on for a really long time. Um, and and I, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that, oh, it's just a few weeks and it'll be over. Because um, it seems like this is going to just really go on until we can get a handle on um, maybe some vaccinations. I mean, you know, I'm not in the medical field, but just speaking as a, as a lay person, there's a fear there. Um, there's a fear that we're never going to be able to, you know, have races again. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sad for the kids, they're teenagers and they're, you know, you only get that experience once they're missing out on a lot of, you know, parties and graduations and proms and, um, competitions and, and all of that is, you know, all the kids are missing out on that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, how are you managing emotionally through all of this? Well, I'm, I'm okay if I stay off social media. Um, the, the more I go on there and I like to get on there and, and, you know, see what other people are doing. Athletes are doing, but it, it very quickly can go to a really negative place really fast with all the speculation and, everybody sort of sniping at each other, which it's, it's just not helping. Um, so as long as I stay off there and just focus on like the day to day, what I can manage, what I can control, then, then I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, but I, I, I think that trying to think beyond too much far, too far in the future and do too much speculating is not good for mental health. Yeah, you, you make a lot of excellent points. Uh, Rebecca Adamson, uh, she lives in the Seattle area. She is a now a very accomplished uh, triathlete, uh, marathoner, open water swimmer. She's really done it all and had success in all of the sports that she's undertaken. She's a third year member of the Cupcake Cartel and shared with us today some uh, really excellent advice on how she's maintaining her motivation and modifying her training in the time of COVID. Um, Rebecca, I really hope that uh, Ironman Canada does come to pass because it'll be my great pleasure to actually meet you in person there as I am also signed up for that race. So let's keep our fingers crossed that this does 
get under control and that uh, things come back to some semblance of normal in the near future. Thank you so much again for joining me and uh, talking about this today. Thank you, too. Thank you so much. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridocpodcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with another personality in the world of triathlon, and another episode of Motivation in Isolation. Until then, stay safe, train hard, train healthy.